of speaking. Hey, Sycamore View, I hope all of you have had a great Thanksgiving week. You were in for a treat today. Scott McDowell is the preacher here at Sycamore View back in the mid-90s, and he is with us today. After Sycamore View, Scott transitioned to Lipscomb University, where he was a senior vice president for student life, and then he moved to Abilene Christian University, where he was the vice president for student life, and now he is the president of Lubbock Christian University. And I want to believe that Sycamore View in Memphis have played a part in shaping Scott and his wife, Kay. They've been married over 30 years and helping to shape them into the people they are today. And I also know and I believe that Scott and Kay have been used by God to shape us into who we are today. So I am thrilled to have Scott uh, here with us to preach the word today. So open up your hearts and your ears. And Scott, we just want you to know we are so proud of who you are, and we, uh, we want to come along to encourage you and support you as you continue to lead a university and many people throughout this nation and this world. Good morning, church. Well, we are indeed blessed and thankful to have Scott here with us this morning. And uh, welcome back to Sycamore View. Okay. So I'd love to pray over you as you share God's word with us. Would you bow with me, please? Heavenly Father, you have blessed us in so many ways. During this tumultuous times, we stop to count our blessings. And one of them is having Scott and Kay and his family here with us. We pray, Father, that the words he has prepared are words that came from you, that are words that will empower and embolden us to be better disciples in your sight and in your work. It would help us to serve in a way that would bring you honor and glory. Father, thank you for him. Thank you for his family. Thank you for their safe journey. And pray, Father, that you would continue to bless them as, they, as you have. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Randy. Appreciate that very much. If you've got your Bibles, open them to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at that text in just a moment. It is a delight to be back with you. It was 27 plus years ago that we came to Sigmore View, and history repeats itself. We came as just a, a, a young couple with no kids. Well, we're not quite as young a couple, but we got no kids. It's kind of empty nests now on the other end of that. Our three sons are scattered across the country, but it is a delight to be with you, be back here at Sigmore View, and to have my niece, Rebecca Patterson Bush, and her family with us. Rebecca sat right in this auditorium when we came. She was just 10 years old back in the day. And uh, one of the singular, <laughs> I remember Re Rebecca's birthday, and I don't remember any other nieces and nephews. The reason I remember is that Kay and I got engaged on that day. <laughs> and I got up and told this whole church back then, you know, I wanted to pick a day that wasn't, you know, just cliche or trite. So I didn't want to do Valentine's Day. And so I picked a day that had no significance whatsoever. It was February 10th, 1990. That just happens to be Rebecca's birthday. Didn't know it at that time. She was a little girl sitting in here devastated. That day had no significance. But that day has great significance, and she's the only one of that whole bunch. I remember your birthday, never will forget it. Rebecca, proud of you and love you very much. We're in John 2. I uh, bring you greetings from Lubbock, Texas. Not an infomercial, but I will say it's just a short plane ride out there. We would love to host you in Lubbock, Texas at Lubbock Christian University, Christ Center Institution, and uh, I can tell you all you want to know about that at another time. John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. 
Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, his mother said to him, I have no more wine. Dear woman, Jesus replied, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word and for this text, and God, we just pray that uh, our time this morning would be well spent. We invite you to be present with us in a special way for your spirit to move among us. And God, I invite you and ask you to speak through me that, uh, that we would hear a word from you. In Jesus' name, amen. It is, it is a great delight to be with you and to be back, and I'm grateful to Josh and the elders for letting us be here. But I want to talk about this text this morning. <clears throat> and when I read this, I'm reminded of a time I made a trip with a group of friends up to Washington, D.C., and we did a lot of things while we were up there. But one of the cool parts for me is we went to this place called the Museum, the news museum and we looked at a variety of different exhibits up there but the exhibit that stuck with me was the the exhibit that had the pulitzer prize winning photographs and so you've got all these incredible iconic images that have been collected ever since they've been given those awards out and some of them as soon as i saw them i remember them but they were all incredibly evocative and they drove home that old cliche that we know a picture is worth what thousand words. And whenever I come to this text, I think about the words of George Ricker, who wrote about this text, and he said, the miracle stories are pictures inserted into the narrative to make the gospel visible. Pictures inserted in the narrative to make the gospel visible. Now, when you understand what's going on with the, particularly the gospels and narrative, that, that kind of goes to another level. John will explicitly tell us why he put all this together and the reason, the, the way he arranged this. In John 20, 30 and 31, he said, Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you might have life in his name. Now that's interesting. He explicitly says... I curated these stories with a purpose, and I arranged them in a particular way with a purpose, and the purpose is to produce faith in Jesus. Now, whenever I was a kid trying to study, I remember a book called The Harmony of the Gospels. I don't want to throw any stones at that book. It was a, a scholarly work, but it tried to say, okay, here's what's the life of Jesus, and here's how it's arranged, and they're trying to bring Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together. And it, it got to be confusing because sometimes it didn't seem to make chronological sense. Why does John have it here and Matthew have it here and Luke have it here? And, 
And it was like, oh my goodness, are there mistakes? And the answer is no, because the Gospels never attempt to be chronological. They attempt to be theological. John is writing with a purpose, and he's arranging the stories in just such a way. And so let me back away from the narrative for just a moment, just kind of talk a little bit about what this looks like. In John 1, for instance, we know in the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same as in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was nothing made that has been made. And then 1, 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Now, we blaze right through that because we're familiar with it, but that is the incredible claim of the incarnation. What John is saying is, God became a man. The actual creating force of the universe became a man. And that, you know, again, we're churched people, so we're comfortable with that, but can you imagine hearing it for the first time and saying, okay, John, I was born one day, but it wasn't yesterday. I mean, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. You really want me to believe that? And so John uses story to invite you into the narrative. And so John chapter 1 concludes with these two stories. One is two of John's disciples, and John's out walking, sees Jesus, and says, there's the Lamb of God. And his disciples follow after Jesus, and it's kind of an awkward moment. He turns around and says, what do you want? And they sort of stumble, Master, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? And here's the dialogue. Jesus says, come and see, come and see. Now, again, that actually happened, and it happened just the way he wrote it down. But in the narrative, in story form, what's going on is John's saying, I just made this radical claim of the incarnation. And I know you might not buy it, but just come and see. And then the last story in John chapter 1 is Nathaniel, back in the town of Bethsaida, the, the Israelite in whom there is no guile, one of the disciples goes to him and says, we found the Messiah, the one written about in the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember Nathaniel's line, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it's the same response, come and see, come and see. And that's John curating these stories to say, I know, I know it's a wild claim, but give me a hearing, check Jesus out, see if he might not actually be the Messiah. And then you get into John chapter 2, where Jesus turns water into wine. And the way this functions in the narrative is to say, Jesus changes everything if you let him. (laughs) He can take the emptiness of water and turn it into the richness and the fullness of wine. But you've got to give him a chance. The very next story is where Jesus cleanses the temple. He's turning over tables. And that functions to say, okay, he turns water into wine. He changes everything. But this is not going to be business as usual. He's going to disrupt things. He's going to disrupt your life. And so that's the way the narrative functions. One last thing about that. In that, in that narrative about the uh, cleansing of the temple, there's this episode where the, the disciples see it happen, and in real time they recognize this, this is the Messiah. It says, when he flips those tables over, it says, they remember the scripture that said, zeal for your house will consume me. And it happened right there. Then two verses later in 21, it tells about, it's not until after Jesus was raised from the dead that they fully understood what was going on. And so again, John's recording this stuff and there are light bulbs that are coming on and going off at various times. And as we go back and we read the narrative, 
we've, we've got to read it kind of like when you're watching a movie that you love and it's, it's the third or the fourth time through or the dozenth time through. And you hear a line and you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't catch that the first time through. It's the same kind of thing here, which sets us up for a lesson that I think is very practical when the wine runs out. What do you do when the wine runs out? And here we are at a wedding feast at Canaan Galley and the wine runs out. And you can say, well, that's not that big a deal. And in the great scheme of things, it's really not, but it was for them, right? And sometimes wine running out for us is just sort of a, you know, another challenging day at the office. Sometimes it's much more significant. Sometimes the wine runs out and you find out that you've got COVID. What do you do when the wine runs out? And sometimes it's not that big a deal of COVID. And sometimes you happen to have COVID with leukemia. What do you do when the wine runs out? And what do you do whenever you answer the call and it's the boss who says we've had to downsize and your name is on the list? What do you do when the wine runs out? What do you do whenever you find out she's been unfaithful or he's been unfaithful or fill in the blank? How do you live when the wine runs out? This text, I think, gives us a template for how to respond when the wine runs out. And I want to jump into that right now with five phrases and five insights. Five phrases, five insights. Here we go. Phrase number one, they have no more wine. (laughs) And insight number one is when the wine runs out, lean into your relationship with God. Now, I love this because here's what's going on. They're They're at the wedding feast and mama comes to Jesus And she's just completely leveraging her relationship with her son. And she says, they have no more wine. And he he says, well, why are you involved with me? My time's not yet coming. I don't want you to miss. Here is, by the sheer force of her relationship, Mary moves up the timetable for the revelation of the Messiah. This is cool stuff. And it's simply because she's saying, hey, here's a need and I know you can do something about it. They have no more wine. Now again, catch the relationship part of this. She's just imposing on him because she knows he can do something. And uh, what I really like about it is that there is, there is not a solution offered. All there is is the need. And I think we need to remember whenever we have challenging times, all that we need to do with God is take, take the situation to him. We don't need to try to prescribe a solution. He can come up with that better than we can. And so here she is leaning into her relationship and realizing even before Paul would later write it down that God is good and he's all the time working for the good of those that love him and those that are called according to his purpose. So she just lays out the problem, trusts him for the solution. I I told uh, the earlier audience that I think in my Greek studies, the rough equivalent to this early statement they have no more wine modern english here it is the dishes and the dishwasher are clean that's the rough equivalent the dishes and the dishwasher are clean now deputy bush do you understand what that means when mama says the dishes and dishwasher are clean what does that mean yeah yeah, unload the dishwasher she didn't have to say that all she had to say was dishes and dishwasher are clean and, and, you know, Will, you need to get that too. If Mama says, this is dishwasher clean, understand what's going on. But that's what's happening here. She doesn't have to draw him a picture. She just says, here's the need. I'm trusting you to do it. 
And again, when the wine runs out in our lives, we lean into our relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I told the early audience, I'm glad that people are at church today. I'm glad that people are listening online. But let's realize that, that our relationship with God is so much more than going to church. That's the hem of the garment. There was a study done at the Willow Creek Church years ago that said there is a direct correlation between going to church and spiritual growth. You actually go on a trajectory of growing spiritually when you go to church for about three years. <laughs> and then if you don't become a self-feeder, if you don't learn to study for yourself and pray for yourself and be a disciple, then your growth will level out and even start to decline, which is why there are so many churches full of people that have been going to church all their lives, but they're spiritually immature. Lean into your relationship with Jesus. I love when Jesus comes off the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark's account, Mark 9, he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration and he's there with his disciples. And there's this man that has a, a son with, with an issue. And he comes to Jesus and says, your, your disciples couldn't cast the demon out. If you can, do something. Jesus says, if he can, anything's possible for him who believes. And the man responds, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus casts the demon out. And then in the debrief, this is the cool part. In the debrief, the disciples say, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus' response was, this kind comes out only by prayer. But what's interesting is he didn't pray. <laughs> what Jesus was saying was, I've got a relationship with God that is, that, is, that is fostered in the quiet place, in the secret place, and that enables me to do things you all are not yet able to do. When the wine runs out, lean into your relationship with Jesus. Line number two, insight number two. Line number two is, do whatever he tells you. Love that line. So again, here's the relationship. They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Do whatever he tells you. She just lets it go in one ear and out the other. She is not taking any of the things that Jesus is dishing out. She is not going to take no for an answer. But she gives this line that I'm going to, I'm going to say we would be hard-pressed to find any better advice in our lives than to do whatever Jesus tells us to do. Am I right there? Do whatever he tells you to do. And so think about how this world would be better if we really put the words of Jesus into practice. Do unto others, you'd have them do unto you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. One of my friends said today's idea of discipleship is we, we call discipleship, we just say, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere I want to go. <laughs> That's not discipleship. Maybe a lot of things, not discipleship. Discipleship says, God, you are, you are Lord, and I will follow you, and I will do your will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And incidentally, uh, remember we said John 1, 1 to 4, in the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, Word was God. Realize Jesus is the creative force in the universe. Jesus was there in Genesis 1, when it says, let us make man in our image. That was Jesus, part of the Godhead. So push back when people say, well, Jesus never said anything about X. Push back on that. Every word of Scripture is from the mouth of Jesus because Jesus is God. And so every word of Scripture is the authoritative word of Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. Line number three, insight number three. Line number three. So they fill them to the brim. And I like this one too because uh, they didn't know whenever they started filling the jars with water that he was going to turn the water into wine they just did what whatever he told them to do and the insight is 
If you're going to follow Jesus, go all in and don't miss anything that God might have in mind for you. Go all in with Jesus and don't hold anything back in reserve. A dear friend of mine, Matt Bumstead, is our dean of the College of Business at uh, Lubbock Christian University. His former job was the co-president of United Supermarkets, kind of like Publix or Kroger here in this region of the country. And he used to always say when he was running that business, we are in the people business, we just happen to sell groceries. We're in the people business, we just happen to sell groceries. And so they, they had that philosophy kind of integrated throughout the company. And so even the, the first-time frontliners had learned, we're in the people business, we just happen to sell groceries. So a little girl working a high school job gets a call in the bakery, and the lady on the other end of the line says, I want to buy a wedding cake. She says, okay, we can do that. Tell me more. When do you need it? She said, I need it this afternoon. <laughs> well, that's a little unusual. And the, the policy was you had, had to have 72 hours so they get everything right. And they, you know, other people in line and all those different things, the reasons for the policy. But she'd been drilled. We're in the people business. We just happened to sell groceries. And so she said, that's, that's pushing the envelope a little bit. But let me talk to my manager. So the manager gets on the phone. And he says, I understand you want to... Wedding cake this afternoon, tell me more. And she said, well, I will tell you more. I'm a nurse over in the cancer ward here in the Lubbock Hospital. We've got a little 19-year-old girl who's not got long, and her boyfriend proposed to her today, we want to have a wedding this afternoon. And he said, you'll have your cake. Now, can you imagine if he'd have just gone with policy, just kind of mailed it in, kind of done the, the bare minimum what he would have missed out on? what she would have missed out on. Fill to the brim, go all in with Jesus. Line number four, insight number four. Line number four, but the servants knew. But the servants knew. When they, when they took the water that had been turned into the wine of the master banquet, he tasted it. It was amazing, but he didn't know where it had come from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. And in fact, one of the subtexts of this story is the servants are the insiders. They're the ones that have all the knowledge. And the application is, if we want more knowledge, if we really want to know God, if we really want to see God's activity, the shortest path to, to knowing God, the shortest path to Christ-likeness is through service. And, and it doesn't matter what kind. Serve. You serve your way to Christ-likeness. Used Ephesians 4 in the earlier service. It was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. When we serve, we build up the body of Christ, and that text goes on to say that we become like Jesus. Service is the short path to Christ-likeness. Line number five, insight number five. Line number five is you've saved the best till now. It's the master of the banquet. They bring him that water that's been turned into wine. He tastes it. He's shocked because this is not the way you do things. You bring out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after guests have had too much to drink. But he tastes it and he just tells the truth. You saved the best till now. And I think whenever John wrote those words down, 40, 50 years after they'd actually been spoken, I think he got a big old smile on his face and said, oh my goodness, we didn't realize what he was saying when he said it in real time. 
But in terms of redemptive history, in terms of the grand scheme of what God was doing in the world, it really was God had saved the best till now because Jesus was there. Jesus was bursting on the scene. He was now manifesting himself. It was the greatest of times. You saved the best till now. And what I want you to do in the inside here is embrace the optimism in this text because I don't, I don't know what your circumstances are. But I do know this, and it's absolute truth. As long as Jesus is on the throne, and He is, these are always the best of times. Come what may. Come what may. A dear friend of mine told me about Nashville several weeks ago whenever the protests had turned into riots. And there was a group of disciples there that were trying to sort out, what are we going to do about this? How do we respond and they do, did the one thing they knew would probably be the most significant thing. They, they went downtown and they did a prayer walk. And they just walked over downtown, Lower Broad in Nashville and prayed everywhere they could. And they just happened to stop down there at Lower Broad outside the honky-tonks. And the honky-tonks were still open. There were people in there and bands were playing. And they're praying. And then they stopped and they broke out into an acapella version of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. And as they were singing, one of the guitar players inside one of those honky-tonks started to play Amazing Grace on his guitar. And then the next honky-tonk down kind of picked it up, and they started playing Amazing Grace. And before it was done, there were six or seven honky-tonks playing a little concert of Amazing Grace on Lower Broad, inspired by some disciples who said, we don't know what to do but to invite God in. I want to tell you that the answer to the problem in Nashville, the problem in this country, the problem in your life, the problem in my life, is the amazing grace of God. These are the best of times. God has saved the best till now. And regardless of where you are, whether the wine has run out, and if it hasn't, it will, remember that God is on His throne. Let's pray together. God, we thank You for Your goodness and for Your mercy and for Your grace. And we pray that you would help us to lean into that more fully even today. In the name of Jesus, amen.